Hello, this is Keith Larson, editor of Control Magazine and ControlGlobal.com. Welcome to this Solution Spotlight episode of our Control Amplified podcast, sponsored today by Anderson Hauser. With me today is Robert Jennings, Repair and Calibration Manager at Anderson Hauser's new Gulf Coast campus in Perlin's Lower Kirby District near Houston. Welcome, Robert. It's a real pleasure to, to talk with you today. Hi, Keith. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for having me on this podcast today. I'm, I'm very excited. It's a great opportunity, and I'm looking forward to this. Well, it's good that you're joining us because our, our topic today is understanding calibration requirements and, and really what what impact they have on industrial plants' performance. I think uh, one of the first things to do is, as, as, as you and I have discussed, there's a lot of kind of loose talk around calibration. People don't always understand what terms mean and terms don't always mean what people understand them to mean. Uh, maybe we can kind of level set by going through um, some key concepts around calibration just to, to, to make everybody aware of what we're talking about when we talk about calibration. Maybe from a big picture, you can talk about just the general concept of metrology first and a, a little bit about you know how, how it is, what makes the world go round. Maybe you can talk a little bit about metrology. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So when we talk about metrology, we talk about the science of measurement. And I think it's important to understand where instruments were before to where they are now. And we'll get more into that. Uh, when it comes to calibration, that term is used very loosely at times because at one point, commissioning or setting a span of a device used to be part or the actual calibration of the device and now as devices have progressed those can be uh, stored into the data and commissioning and setting spans are very much different than performing calibration and when we talk about the term of calibration from a metrology standpoint that is the comparison of a known standard to the uut or what we call the unit under test and when you're doing calibrations, uh, you want to make sure that you have traceability in the test equipment, and that traceability should be traced back to the highest level of, for us in the United States, would be you know NIST, things like that. And it's also important to understand the difference between a calibration device of verification. When we talk calibration, we want to make sure that we have what used to be called TUR or total uncertainty ratio, but it's now called the measurement capability. Mm -hmm. And you want to observe a higher level of accuracy or lower uncertainty, when we're talking metrology, of your references to your unit under test. And the typical measurement capability would be a three to one ratio. So you would want to be three times more accurate than the unit under test. Mm -hmm. And when you also get into testing the devices, you have different points that you would select to do those calibration runs, those comparisons. Mm -hmm. And you also want to make sure that you have some redundancy in those to make sure that it's repeatable mm -hmm. because you just test at one point. Then if you test at that same point again, is the measurement also performing to that same level? And that is also important because it's one thing to, to make an adjustment and make a device more accurate, but if it's not repeatable, which way do you go? Do you go high? Do you go low? And so understanding the, the device and the characteristics of it will help you through those steps. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in, in some cases where you're doing your measurement, it may be more critical to be repeatable than it is to be accurate. So it's good. You have to know how your instrument's being applied, right? Yeah, very much so. 
um, you know, from an operation standpoint, an operator knows what they're doing. They know how to make their recipes or their batches. And regardless of how accurate the device could be at that time, if it's consistently repeatable and they can reproduce the same results, the end product may be more important than the accuracy of the device for them. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Another term that comes to mind, and I guess it really applies more to the calibration processes that take place before a new instrument leaves a manufacturer's facility is characterization. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is as well and how it helps to boost the performance expectations of many of our um, smarter instruments that we have today that are di digitally enabled? Absolutely. Uh, so when we get into characterization, a lot of different instruments have what we call their, their accuracy statements. And when a manufacturer produces an instrument, regardless of the discipline, they, they know how that instrument should perform based on tried and true methods from the calibration and the design of the instrument. You know, for instance, when you talk about a Coriolis meter, mass meter, or magnetic flow meter, they both have what we call a calibration factor and they also have a zero point factor and so you can change not just uh, the linearity you can make slope changes and different things like that where when it comes to something like a vortex flow meter they don't have that zero point in them they just don't perform as well down at the lower velocities and they're not specced as such so you really want to understand how the device technology should perform and just to Regardless whether the manufacturer is Anderson Hauser or another third party, uh, those disciplines and theories are operating in the same methods. Um, and so as a manufacturer, we understand those. And it also helps us when suited to do a recalibration for a customer because it can also help with ensuring that the application is in the right span for, for where they're operating. Mm -hmm. and ensuring that how the calibration results uh, also match how they would like to see this perform in their process. Yeah, that makes sense. You know a lot about laboratory calibration since you're, you're running a pretty significant <laughs> calibration operation there, there in the Gulf Coast. There are several pillars that I think of that support best practices in terms of laboratory calibrations and include your references, standards, procedures, um, controlled conditions for when you have a unit under test, but also training and competency of, of your technicians that are doing the calibrations. Can you kind of step through, maybe use an example of a, I don't know, a six inch mag meter or something and how each of those elements come into play and how you do a, a laboratory calibration? Yes, so you know a lot of the calibration uh, methods that we have when we we're calibrating you know, used instruments that come back in from the field, We've adopted a lot of the same methods that we use when we manufacture them. And uh, when we calibrate a six inch mag, for instance, um, you have a lot of pieces to, to performing calibration. One, you have to have, again, equipment that is far superior than a unit under test. Mag meter, now they make mag meters with uncertainty of as low as 0.2% plus or minus. And so that you know, takes something that's at least three times as accurate from the equipment standpoint with the uncertainty budgets. So you have to have good flow references and the ability to also pull the outputs of the device. You also have to have controlled conditions during the calibration. There's some rules in ISO 17025 when it comes to flow calibrations where you're not able to interrupt things like the flow profile. So you know any changes in the flow rate or pressure, line pressure, things like that have to be controlled 
Mm-hmm. So it takes very good equipment and, and methods, and, and we use procedures that are also challenged and gone through uh, international standards. So we hold ISO 17025 credentials. And so, you know, that is the, the highest level that we have to go to. And so we have procedures. We have individuals that go through more of an apprenticeship program with us. We want to make sure that they understand how the devices perform and how they operate and the theory behind them before we want to put someone on performing a calibration and then potentially making an adjustment. Because mm-hmm. if you don't understand the device, uh, you could have a a process condition that gives you certain characteristic out of the device and you need to be able to determine what is going on. Is it something with the process or is it something with, mm-hmm. with the device itself? Ideally, you don't want to have to try to adjust instruments. You want your devices to perform stellar year after year. Mm-hmm. And so uh, having you know experienced technicians with know-how, having procedures to be able to follow and perform calibrations in a similar method time after time, having controlled environment. We find that there's lots of different equipment that we use to build a flow rig. And to do that, you have to have the uncertainties calculated and budgeted for of all the test devices. So you want to make sure that you're, again, operating in reference conditions mm-hmm. for those other instruments, whether it's an electrical uh, reference or a flow meter. And so there's a lot of pieces to that. And then having the right information on the unit under test to be able to perform a calibration that makes sense. A six-inch mag meter can flow a lot of volume. And so you would want to make sure that you're calibrating at flow rates that make sense for that technology, that they're high enough in the velocity to ensure that you can check the zero point stability as well as the, the calibration factor of that device. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of elements and a lot of factors to take into play. Not to complicate things further, but sometimes it's desirable to calibrate an instrument using the actual process conditions and process media as part of a larger system that might include a IO card or transmitter or HMI display. What kind of industries do you see really requiring that in situ testing and how do you accommodate that in your calibration practices and how does that affect your expected results typically? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And um, we see time and time again that when it comes to customers and you know life science and food and beverage, as well as even the oil and gas, they really like to calibrate either in their process conditions or with their process fluids. And that can be quite challenging because now you don't have the, the nice safe control of doing a flow meter calibration, let's say with, with water in a lab environment. And so now you might be in uh, you know, West Texas and it might be hot and you might be having to deal with things that, you know, temperature swings and uncontrolled uh, process conditions. But at the end of the day, that could be what's important to either the regulatory requirement or or the customer itself, because they really want to see how is this device performing. Because it's one thing to say that a device performs great in lab conditions. Mm-hmm. We would hope that they all do meet the spec, but it can be another challenge to do that in the field. And so it takes a little more planning to be able to do that, a little more coordination from the customer. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to have some resources dedicated to help to do that, to, to execute on that, because we can bring a reference in and, and some equipment in, but to be able to run their process, you know, if we're talking flow calibrations mm-hmm. in the field or proving, then we would want to be able to have some controlled flow and the ability to stop and start 
when it comes to something like, say, temperature calibrations, where they may want to use the RTD that could be coupled to a transmitter and then also going to an HMI. There could even be a recorder in there. So you could have up to four different components. And what is the biggest challenge with temperature that we see is that uh, temperature is usually held tighter than what it can be when you add in all the uncertainties of all those other pieces. You know, the transmitter has an uncertainty. Mm -hmm. The RTD has an uncertainty. The HMI has that. And all of those things have to be counted for and compounded. And then you may do your calibration test and then find out, well, we need to make an adjustment. We need to make this read better mm -hmm. than what it was as found conditions. Well, now sometimes that takes a little more investigation because where do you adjust? You could easily go to the HMI if that's what operations and, and quality says this is the end all. Mm -hmm. But what if it's actually in the transmitter? What if there's some offsets that were already put in previously from previous calibration where maybe the RTD was changed at one point and the transmitter uh, had some bias in there that was left from the previous device before that change took effect? Yeah, that's a good point. These calibrations can take quite some time when you run into making adjustments and then even being able to just determine what is the correct MPE or max permissible error for that system calibration. Makes sense. You mentioned a little bit around compliance um, requirements and regulatory drivers that dictate calibration practices and standards. What are some of those and how do they how do they vary by industry in terms of how they affect uh, your, your procedures or the reporting that you do? Yeah, it turns out as time goes by, uh, we have more restrictions and regulations in the world than, than the previous years, right? I think Thomas Jefferson once said he'd like to abolish laws and start over every 19 years or something like that. And uh, <laughs> what would a world we would have today if that was the case? Yeah. But uh, anyway. Um, Seldom get a yeah. sheet of paper, do we? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> So as, as these restrictions and regulations come into play, um, you know, a lot of it is geared towards environmental and safety. Um, we have things that come out from regulatory uh, authorities like FDA to ensure that things that come into contact with anywhere from pet food to topical things that people put on their skin to things that people ingest in medicine. We have to make sure that there's some consistency and safety factors to ensure that people um, stay safe and, mm -hmm. you know, we can have a better better world that we have today as we go forward. And so those things come into play and a lot of those have some, some blanket statements where things have to be calibrated at set intervals. It could be, you know, annually. Some industries have more frequent and a lot of it depends on how much usage is this, this instrument seeing. We have customers that run billions of dollars of product through flow meters annually. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it may not just be the, the regulatory requirement requires it, but it also could be a, a financial decision for them to stop and pull a calibration and ensure that uh, that, that is good. You know, when it comes to things like custody transfer, mm -hmm. we want to make sure that we have bids that are exchanging between different parties that, and uh, that party is both receiving and, and sending out what what it is that they say that they're they're you know trading for whether it's other commodities or mm -hmm. or finances and i think the there's also regular requ regulatory requirements around emissions as well which was probably only going to get more more <laughs> more important as we look at the mitigating climate change and other issues like that yeah definitely i mean 
you know, there was some news that came out a couple of years ago with one of the regulations with IMO, uh, where we are pushing as, you know, the organization globally to be able to lower the emissions that, that the fossil fuels produce and have lower sulfur distillates to help lower and lessen the cancer rates and, you know, fatalities that we have from, from these type of pollutants that go into the air and the atmosphere. Unfortunately, we, we, we we need a lot of these things in our life to to have all the things that we have to to make it through our days. So mm-hmm. it's definitely a challenge. And as populations grow, mm-hmm. these challenges become bigger. And so we have to get smarter and and challenge ourselves to do better and make things safer mm-hmm. as a whole. And calibration and regulations help help get us there. Mm-hmm. Back to that central role of metrology in in, the, in sustaining society. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to jump to, I guess, a kind of a, not a bigger topic, but a more <laughs> more targeted topic, talked a lot about all the factors that go into um, successful calibration. How can a process facility begin to create a program that ensures all its instruments are calibrated at optimal intervals? And that, by that, I mean often enough to ensure accuracy is within those maximum permissible error levels, but also not so often that you have unnecessary efficiency, doing it more often than you need to, and sometimes you can, if you have to pull an instrument out and mess with it and put it back in, you're create, creating risk as well. How do, how do you go about creating that, that practice within an end user facility for ensuring that, uh, that you're calibrating it at optimal intervals? Yeah, that's a great point. And again, some of these are also mandatory from regulatory requirements. So Mm -hmm. sometimes it may not be what's best and more efficient and effective, but it's just what it has to be to meet that need. But we see a lot of uh, end users that try to start calibration programs. And, you know, that is uh, when it comes to calibrations and, and procedures and, and things as such, it's good to look at it as a as a living organism, right? So mm-hmm. we have procedures as an ISO 17025 calibration provider. And sure, over time, we, we learn new things and, and new information comes out. And so things are set by the book, but the book is intended to be evolved and, and made better over time. And so I think it's important to look at things like criticality of the device and to help classify it. It would behoove a customer to to spend time to look at their instruments and what it is that they're doing and the impact that those instruments and other assets have on the process. Mm-hmm. Um, safety standpoint, from a quality standpoint, ensuring that uh, these devices that make the biggest impact are definitely looked at through a more stringent lens to ensure the calibrations are good. Mm-hmm. And so I think you, you start with getting a, a list of your assets and, and classifying them and then going through and, and beginning the calibration process. It may turn out that you have really good instrumentation and those instruments could actually not need as many calibrations as you currently are calibrating them. However, it takes data to come up with that. Mm-hmm. It takes you know years of data points and looking at statistics to be able to determine is there a need for a more frequent calibration or maybe we can loosen this up and, and do less calibration. Mm-hmm. So we have customers that literally have instruments that are calibrated every three months mm-hmm. and they've been doing this for years. And now they are using the data because the instruments have performed so stellar over these years that, well, now they're pushing it out to six months. 
mm-hmm. and they feel confident in that. And I think the, the main thing is feeling confident. You do a calibration, you're not only checking the instrument and seeing how it performs, but you're gaining that confidence in that instrument. Mm-hmm. As you gain that confidence and you collect that data, you can go into it and then determine, yes, we want to try to push this out. Mm-hmm. And then those decisions should should take time. They should take thought. And sometimes when you have to adjust something, maybe you, you do a more frequent calibration afterwards. That way you can monitor that device because you could have five of the same assets and one of them seems to get adjusted every time it goes in for calibration. Right. So let's maybe treat that as an anomaly and let's isolate that. So maybe we keep the calibration intervals for that asset the same. Uh, and then maybe there comes a point where depending on how big of adjustments are over time, maybe time to replace that device, mm-hmm. something else. And so through data and, and calibration, you, you can make those those decisions. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Well, given the just overall higher performance capabilities of today's instruments, the performance of the calibration infrastructure needed to support those instruments has also gone up when you talk about the factor of three from one uh, one level to the next in terms of, of ensuring accuracy. What factors go into a plant's decisions to do their own calibrations, especially given these more demanding environments, versus engaging with the third-party specialist to do that? Or are there certain situations where you want to have a third-party come in? Or how, how do you? what are the factors that go into that decision, I guess? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to a few factors of one, price. How expensive is it to do your own calibrations by mm-hmm. sending something off or having a third party come in? Mm-hmm. The other is the know-how. I mean, there's a lot of customers and users, people out there that feel comfortable doing their own pressure calibrations, right? Mm-hmm. And so they have the modules and you know the pumps and the ability to, to apply pressure and and check those and for some that is that is good enough and that's okay the other factor is we talked about things from the the regulatory requirements there's a lot more scrutiny from those people that want to know that you are sending a device off to calibration because if you're a process company and you're you're making a product and that is your core competence more than likely calibration is not now we talk life science pharmaceutical they may have their own metrology team mm-hmm. and that could very much be handled in-house for most if not all of their calibrations right because that's what they do and that's their metrology team's core competence so that also is a factor to ensure that you have an unbiased third party come in that could also be much value there mm-hmm. and and the other is, is Again, how challenging it is, and we talked about how expensive it is. We're talking about instruments like Coriolis mass flow technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have changed the game with measurement capability. The rules of metrology used to be, you know, three to one ratio mandatory for the reference to the unit under test. And with Coriolis, that takes millions of dollars to do that. Right. Um, so now. To, Coriolis is so accurate that you may only can uh, get by with two to one ratio. And so as devices become more accurate and more intelligent, when you have things like Andrus Hauser has uh, onboard technology, like what we call heartbeat, heartbeat technology. So what that does is there's actually uh, some redundancy electronics built in with quartz prisms in there that, that help map the device out when it leaves the factory how the electronics perform 
and it does tests in the background that can be on demand or and then does it just as the device powered on it's always monitoring and being able to pick up if there's any shifts in the fluctuations in the electronics mm -hmm. so you know as time goes by we keep getting smarter and smarter electronics we even have you know, temperature devices that can pass the curry point where mm -hmm. there's a point where it can actually check itself because there's this known temperature at this phenomenon that happens. And so all you have to do is pass that temperature point and then you're essentially doing an internal calibration. So a lot of the devices now are coming with intrinsic references built into them. And so it may not meet the regulatory requirement today you may still have to do a calibration because that can also be looked at as a verification to some. Right. But uh, it could definitely help you get some some data, as we talked about, as to when it is a good time to pull the device. If, if your device is telling you, hey, you need to look at me, there's something going on here, that's a good time to do an impromptu calibration and not just wait for an interval, right? Yeah. Um, Listen to the, the, the source of information that, that knows the best, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Instruments are going to report what they see, and it's it's up to us as you know instrumentation folks to to look at that and see what is really happening here. You know, so but yeah, the standards that we have today and and how technology has advanced, it's not what it was before, and it will continue to get better and tighter. And really, you know, it, it's a lot of times the devices that we manufacture and others do are far better than what is demanded for the customer's process. And so that's good stuff. You know, customers may have a spec of 1% and they may be using a 0.1% device. And that's that's great. That means you're you're going to be OK. You know, as long as that device is performing well with good calibration, you're going to be uh well within your means. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I really appreciate, Robert, you taking the time to walk us through some of these concepts and uh, and really document how much better instruments have gotten and hence how much more challenging <laughs> calibration has gotten in the process. So thank you for, for shedding some light on that. Once again, uh, our guest today has been uh, Robert Jennings of Anderson Hauser, and we really appreciate you uh, for taking the time, Robert. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Keith. For those of you listening, also thanks for, for tuning in. Thanks also to Anderson Hauser for sponsoring this episode. I'm Keith Larson, and you've been listening to a Control Amplified podcast. Thanks for joining us. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe at the iTunes Store and at Google Podcasts. Plus, you can find the full archive of past episodes at controlglobal.com. Signing off until next time. Stay safe. Bye now.